This is an ABC podcast. Conversation is kind of messy, um, but it's still very interesting and very valid. Hello, I'm Lisa Leong, and on This Working Life, how to talk to people using our voice, not our fingers and thumbs. When is an interaction an interruption? And why do we now feel the need to ask if it's okay to interrupt a colleague in the middle of a workday? And hybrid work has made managing communication even more nuanced, yet crucial. Talking on the phone, actually talking, not texting, is something we're so out of the habit of, we've almost forgotten how to do it. We're going to hear from someone who's made a career out of teaching phone skills. And one of the things that I ask them to do is to spend two days phoning family and friends, not texting. It's really performance anxiety in a way. And what I like to tell people is, you know, talking on the phone does have a lot in common with public speaking. But first, why you should get out from behind your screen and talk to your colleagues in person rather than emailing them. There's even a new name for this, desk bombing. Ravi Gajendran. I'm a professor of management at uh, the College of Business, Florida International University. Ravi, you published research this year looking at how using email instead of talking to people affects our work. How did you get interested in this? So I was inspired by a colleague who uh, had this predilection to, you know, exchange long emails. So I would send him a paragraph worth of email and he would get back with two, forcing me to reply with three, he would get back with six. So very soon it would be, uh, you know, I would be out of my wits, but it would seem to energize him. So I got thinking that, you know, this is tiring and I'm sure many others have experienced this. Uh, I got talking to others and a lot of people felt that email is tiring and that they got sucked into these long chains that left them exhausted. Emails have been happening for uh, a while now. Why do you, why is it important now to do this study and to examine our use of emails? So email is great for uh, conveying information if you're updating one another and you want to coordinate stuff. But increasingly, as remote work and virtual teams become, you know, so the go-to mode of uh, working, uh, people often cannot just turn around and speak to their coworkers. Even if their coworkers in the same city, uh, they may not be, you know, coming into office on the same days because of hybrid work arrangements. And as people increasingly can work from anywhere, even coordinating synchronous phone conversations. Uh, or Zoom meetings becomes difficult, and then email becomes sort of the default choice for many people. And people are forced to do fairly complex uh, activities, not just over email, but also over Slack, over other asynchronous text-based repositories. So email is great for conveying information. Once you start working on complex activities using email, the, the cost associated with the mental cost associated with that is is pretty steep, not only for the task at hand, more importantly, once you finish that communication task or email, and then you move to something that requires you to think, requires you to problem solve, you do worse on that second task as well. So there's a downstream effect of having worked on a cognitively demanding task like problem solving or negotiation uh, over email. What did your study specifically find then? We had a set of about four studies uh, that together compared, you know, working on the same task using email 
uh, versus working on the same task in person. So we randomly assigned pairs of people to work over email or or, or in person over the same on the on the same task. And this was a complex task. We varied the tasks, of course. One task was a negotiation task. Another task was a picture sorting task. So across these uh, set of studies, what we find is using email for complex tasks leads to reduced motivation for subsequent tasks, which in turn hurts performance on that next task that you turn to. And then in a fifth study, we uh, we then said, okay, what about, you know, for the same person, if one day they have more email versus, uh, you know, less email, uh, do they do worse on the day with more email versus less email? And that's what we find. We find that, especially for people who hold jobs that involve a lot of problem solving, on days that they have more email land up in their inbox compared to days when they have less email, uh, they seem to feel that they make less progress on their work. At the end of the day, they feel disengaged. They don't feel as motivated. And how does email affect our communication? When you think about doing you know, a negotiation task or a problem-solving task or email, you have to craft that email carefully. So it, first, typing takes a lot of time. Typing involves effort. You have to think about you know, how you're going to say and what you're going to say. You have to put yourself in the other person's shoes, uh, you know, think about how they're going to interpret what you're going to say. You, you have to think a lot, uh, and then you have to type out what you're thinking, and you often have to say more than you would if you were just face-to-face. Email uh, is costly. It's costly not just for when you're communicating, but once you're done communicating, it sort of has taxed your mind in a way uh, that makes it difficult for you to then have energy for the next task. Whereas in face-to-face communication, I can I have much more information about how you're receiving my message. You can observe my body language. You can observe you know the level of enthusiasm, and I can see you, and I can figure out, hey, are you getting this? You know, I can sort of real time, you know, check and see if what I'm saying is making sense to you or not. And therefore, it becomes much more efficient to correct misunderstandings. So it reduces the possibility of misunderstandings as well. So if you put all this together, it's much more efficient, especially when working on complex things, to to talk it out, preferably synchronously over phone or Zoom or face-to-face if possible. And from your studies, do you have a theory or a hypothesis of what emails are best used for then? Yes. So emails are great when we have to just share information. So let's say, you know, we're working on a project, you know, I get some new information about, let's say, market reports, uh, audience participation or engagement. I have data that I want to share with you. I can send you a quick email saying that here are the top line findings. Or if I want to send, you know, a, a research paper, you know, across to you for you to think about and, you know, understand, email is great for that. But what it's not great for is uh, trying to create understanding around information that we already have, but we don't fully agree on or have varying interpretations about. Do you have good rules of thumb or guidelines as to categorising uh, the things that we want to do so that we can choose whether it's best done over email, as you're saying, for information flows or something which is more like a complex problem negotiating decision making? So the first guideline is, uh, if at all possible, you know, if you're doing something complex, uh, get off email and get on the phone or try to meet up in person if that's convenient. There are many situations where you you want, even if it's a complex task, you want it on email. 
because maybe you want to keep records or maybe because, you know, you can copy three other people who need to be in on the conversation. Then the thing to keep in mind is, uh, look, if I'm working on this complex activity or email, it's going to tire me out. And so I should be mindful of what I turn to afterwards uh, because I might not be as energized or I might not have as much motivation. I might do worse on that. So if you have like an important meeting with your boss, you know, don't do it right after you've, you've engaged in some complex email communication. Wait, maybe take a walk, energize yourself, and then go into, you know, that meeting. Or if you're you know, doing some important work right after, uh, just be mindful so that you understand that if you choose to do this over email, there are costs for that task, that important task that you're going to turn to afterwards. And Ravi, what did you do about the email correspondence of your team member <laughs> that that was very long and arduous? How did you handle that one? <laughs> this person was way more senior than me. He's a very nice guy. So uh, sometimes I would just walk across to his office, you know, just chat with him to see if I could get that off email. I, and what I figured is, he doesn't need me to respond an email. A lot of the times when we feel pressure to respond an email, we feel because it's come by email, I need to respond by email. And that may not necessarily be the case. Uh, oftentimes they don't recognize that, you know, it's taxing them too. So you might be doing them a favor. Ravi, can you share an example of people wasting time and energy trying to communicate over email from your study? Uh, whether you do it on email or whether you do it face-to-face, performance doesn't suffer. People make about you know, the same quality of decisions uh, in, in their negotiation. Uh, but it just takes much, much longer. And so uh, just establishing rapport, just figuring out, you know, what each person means, uh, that takes forever on email. How should we use your findings? I want to be very careful about how people uh, use our findings. First, it's not, we're, we're definitely not saying don't use email. Uh, just being mindful that there are costs. You know, if you know that, look, if I do this complex task on email, uh, I'm going to be worse off. You can choose to engage in that email communication back and forth, you know, at a time when you don't have anything important afterwards, right? Or you could do it at, towards the end of the day. The hidden cost is that you you not only is email tiring for the task you're, you're working on, it's also tiring for, for subsequent tasks you turn to afterwards. Mary Jane Copps is known literally as the phone lady. And I train people how to have conversations on the telephone. Oh, that's pretty niche. How did you get into this? Well, it's a funny story and I'll try to make it short. I was taking a bit of a break and helping a friend build his software business. And it was only a couple of days a week, but I grew that business from 13 clients to 100. I looked at him one day and I said, look, I have to go and get a full-time job now. It's enough lazing about. He said, no, he said, you don't have to get another job. You need to start another company. You need to teach people what you know about talking on the phone. And my reaction was, that's not a company. That's common sense. (laughs) And he said, no, it's a company. He said, stay here, use my office space, We'll just do a test. We'll run it through my business. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure I'm right. So I printed 10 brochures on a dot matrix printer, sent them into the world and got three jobs right away. And how do we get to the point now where we need to be taught how to answer calls and make phone calls? You know, the Blackberry became the Crackberry in the early 90s. 
So people began talking with their thumbs that long ago. And so now we have several generations in the workforce that watched their parents move from phone conversations to conversations with their thumbs. What I often say to my classes, my students, no matter what industry they're in, I learned how to answer a phone by the age of three because there was a family phone. It was in the kitchen on the wall and you had to learn how to answer it. You needed to go to school and know your phone number. <laughs> like there was something you learned as a young person. And that's not taught at home anymore. No one learns how to talk on a phone at home. They're given a phone, but they use that with their, with their fingers. And so who are your clients then? As new generations enter the workforce, even if I'm um, working with a group of people from 30 to 50, there are always people now who are afraid of the phone or have phone anxiety. Say more about phone anxiety, Mary Jane. It is about the unknown. So the prospect of dialing a number and someone answers and, oh my gosh, what happens next? It's really performance anxiety in a way. And what I like to tell people is, you know, talking on the phone does have a lot in common with giving, with public speaking. You can't fully prepare for a phone conversation, but there are uh, there's a foundation of basic skills that you need to have in order to have a lot of confidence when you're talking on the phone. You mentioned phone psychology and, and some of these skills that you need to develop. What are some of these key skills? Well, when you want to create conversation, and you know this from the work that you do, you need to be comfortable asking open-ended questions. It's not a process of asking somebody uh, some prepared questions that only result in a yes or no. You have to be able to ask an open-ended question that could give you any kind of answer. But then following that, you have to listen to that answer and build on that answer they've given you. And hopefully that's another open-ended question. That's what makes it a conversation and not a survey. And so what are you finding when you're coaching younger people who may not have grown up with the fixed line telephone and learning how to answer the home phone? The common fear that I get asked about the most is what if they ask me something I can't answer? The other is how do I end a phone call? <laughs> really? I was so surprised. Yes. I was so surprised in a workshop when someone put their hand up and said, well, how do I end a phone call? I'm not sure what my face looked like. I'm sure it wasn't good because I wanted to almost be sarcastic and say goodbye. Like I was so surprised by the question. And so what would you teach them? What would you teach them there then in terms of how do you finish a phone call when you feel like, okay, now I need to go? There's a pacing difference when we go to end a phone call and our voices change. So when we're in full conversation, like you and I are now, 
there's a rhythm to what we're doing and there's no indication that this conversation is near its end. We're having a good conversation. But when we're ready to wrap up, you're going to say, oh, this has been really great, Mary Jane. I'm going to say it really has, Sarah. Thanks so much for your time. And my voice actually drops a bit lower. Yours will too. And that's how everybody knows that, you know, we're leaving the conversation. I love it. Oh, and sorry, Mary Jane, and because I didn't introduce myself, sorry. I'm Lisa Leong, so I'm the presenter. Can you share a story of someone that you've worked with who maybe exhibited phone anxiety, uh, particularly in a work setting, and, and how they changed their mindset and behaviour? One of my favourite ones is a, a young woman, her uh, employer called me one morning and said, Mary Jane, I, I've just met with so-and-so and she's in absolute tears about her work. And she's actually booked an appointment with her physician to organize anti-anxiety medication because of how she reacts every time the phone rings. Can you spend some time with her? You know, we immediately organized it and I, I spent an hour with her on the phone and as I've mentioned earlier, one of her biggest fears was, what if they ask me a question I can't answer? So every time that phone rang, she, she just felt, well, I'm going to blow it. So there's, you know, maybe a control issue there to try and, and feel more confident in the conversation. In working with her and letting her know that, you know, the other person is vulnerable too when they're calling you. They're calling you for information and they're not sure how they're going to be received and so on. And you are in control when you answer. You're in control with your tone of voice. You're in control with your pacing. And in that messiness, what's your tip for how to hold that and and what to do next when you're feeling like, uh-oh, <laughs> getting messy here. I've lost control. Be honest. So let's see, in this conversation, I forgot to use your correct name. That's okay. These things happen. It's conversation and it's a vulnerable place to have a conversation. But being in that moment with somebody and learning more about them and asking great questions is also a fascinating space. So with the young people and teenagers, are parents signing them up for coaching with you or is it through schools? Primarily through, I'm going to say not-for-profit groups, although I have spoken at many colleges and universities as well. So it's not at the high school level, although I wish it was, but it's primarily through college programs and then not-for-profits working with young people that want skills they can take into the job market. And is it something where practice makes progress? Definitely. I mean, I think that's what we've discovered. Talking on the phone and conversation itself is a skill. And how would you force someone to do that practice? phone anxiety and phone fear is not restricted to younger people. I often have uh, people who are in their 40s or 50s. They've spent a lot of time 
on screen with email and so on, and they're out of practice feeling confident on the phone. And one of the things that I ask them to do is to spend two days phoning family and friends, not texting. So start with people that you're already comfortable talking to, but call them on the phone and have a conversation. What do they report back, Mary Jane? (laughs) Well, one of the fun things is it was so fun and it didn't take us long to figure out what we were going to do Friday night at all. (laughs) Because you're on the phone, you're not going back and forth with texts, right? One young person that I spoke to said that um, she has a she had a friend in another city and they spoke on the phone all the time, whereas with her local friends, she they texted all the time. And what she noticed is when she started calling her local friends, she knew as much about them now as she did about the friends she talked to long distance. So when they got together, they were a little bit disconnected. They had to do a lot of catching up just because they were only texting. But once they started talking on the phone again, when they got together, they were all really connected and knew what was going on in each other's lives. In terms of um, phone conversation planning, do you suggest that people have some sort of structure in their heads? Yes, in a business environment, for sure. You want to have the key points in front of you, not only because you might get nervous, but because when we're in conversation, it's easy to lose your way and maybe use the wrong name in conversation, for example. Mary-Jane, what did you learn about how to make the person you're potentially cold calling feel comfortable and feel like it's a good experience? You really want to let go of all of your, what I call, iffy language. So I'm just calling, I'm hoping this is a good time, I'm wondering if you could maybe spend some time with me. All that iffy language puts the other person ill at ease and increases their skepticism that this conversation is worth their time. So in the world we live in, where phone calls have a criminal element to them now, and we're all more suspicious of calls we're not expecting, what we want to do is start the call and get right to the point. Let the other person know that we're going to tell them exactly why we're calling. So if I were to call you and you didn't recognize my number and you answer, as soon as you answer, you have two questions popping up in your mind. And the first one is, what is this about? And as soon as you hear that I'm going to tell you the reason, you're going to relax a little bit but I'm going to have to prove to you that it's worth your time in the next 20 seconds. Would you ever ask about whether it's a good time for me to have that conversation with you or even mention how long or the duration of the call um, that you're hoping to have with me? I don't. (laughs) And here's why. What I teach instead is this. If you answer my call, I am going to be fully present. 
If I am calling you at home and I hear dishes rattling, instead of saying, have I caught you at a bad time? I'm going to say, oh, it sounds like you're having dinner. What that does is it gives you the experience that I'm already paying attention to you. I'm already interested in you. And it's up to you to decide where you want to go with that. You might say to me, no, 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 I'm, it, it's fine. I'm taking the dishes to the kitchen. Or you might say, yes, we are about to sit down for dinner. And I'll say, fine, I will call it another time. I love that. Yeah, it works very well because I think we all get defensive when someone says, is this a good time? It's because of streaming it's changed. So all of us believe because we can watch anything or listen to anything, any time of day or night, we all believe we have more control over our time. And because of that, we feel irritated when we get an unexpected phone call. We've got our day so well planned out that that phone rings and it's like, no way I'm taking that call. I've planned this day perfectly. And why would you say in that um, scenario, it's still useful to have that phone call over, say, the email chains or texting? It's about tone of voice because when we write, we write with a tone of voice in our head. When we read, we also have a tone of voice in our head and those two things can be different. And so you totally can miscommunicate. But also send doesn't mean received. If people are getting 150, 200 emails a day and you're sitting in your office wondering why they didn't get back to you. So you're creating this this chain of, of miscommunication. But also even in this conversation, your interest in the work that I do is evident to me from your tone of voice. If you sent me questions by email and I answered them, you would have something to write about, but you wouldn't be able to create this conversation based on things you're hearing in the present moment. Thank you so much, Mary Jane. You're welcome. We made this episode on the lands of the Gadigal and Wiradjuri people. This Work in Life is produced by Sarah Allerley. She's been practising desk bombing when she goes into the office. Me? Just call me anytime. I'm Lisa Leong, and until next time, love your work. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app. 